Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Well, hello there. I am Chris Steyerwolf. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Heck yeah. Welcome to Inkstained Wretches, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana, we haven't been together here for way too long in the hollowed halls of the American Enterprise Institute for weeks since certainly before Christmas. And here we are. And today you're very obliging because I am late. I got here late because packing for Iowa, I'm leaving from here to go to Iowa. And packing for Iowa defeated my spirit. I think I think I am emotionally wrecked from packing for Iowa. I think it broke me. Well, speaking of Iowa, yes, enjoy the weather. <laughs> uh, the part enjoy of enjoy the weather. Part of what broke my spirit was when I looked at the forecast. I'd been tracking the forecast for Iowa for Caucus Day, which is on Monday, and it had said that it was going to be a low of three degree, negative three, and I was like. It's going to be fine. That's going to lighten up, blah, 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 blah. And then in the pre-dawn hours today, I popped it up, and the low is down to negative 15, and the high is down to negative 2. And I'm going to do it, but when you watch me on News Nation, when you see me there, you'll know that I, I think for men— We'll envision you in your long underwear. I think for, I have two two sets, <laughs> two sets, one Carhartt, one L.L. Bean, but— I think for men and women, when you if you were going to go someplace for a week, how many bags would you need to take? I'm a super light packer, and I always arrive and never have enough. If I were packing for Iowa, here's the thing: women are not smelly, so I can I can, I can some attest. I can attest. Like, I've known Eliana for years. Always neutral to good smelling, <laughs> uh, but you know, like I can sweat and. The sweat doesn't smell it. And I always wonder if it's just that I don't smell it. But I do ask people, I ask my husband, like, can you? Romance. Yeah. Honey, do I be stinking? But it doesn't smell bad. And so I feel like women can get away with actually less. Well, Um, and here's the other thing. And my clothes are smaller. I was just about to say, your your clothes are doll-sized clothing. And you could fold them up when, when Jessica is packing for something and she can fit a week's worth of clothes in one little she's a she's an extraordinarily good packer for me by the time you put 250 extra long suits in a garment bag and six shirts and two blazers you're like so i i feel like a little bit like jaja gabor and i'm prepared for the shame that i will feel when i arrive to check my bags to check a, a humiliating three bags to go to iowa for a week yeah. It's a lot. And and I would bring, like, you know, only a pair of, like, knee-high snowboards. Well, but can I just say, I hate, I I, I'm, I don't like to be dressed inc- ever incorrectly. I don't like to appear slovenly. But I have a beef about TV news people in the field. So, like, if you're in the West Bank, right, if you're in Kiev and you're dressed for a war zone, go for it. Wear your army surplus, you know, tactical sweater and your, like, go for it. I I got it. But I don't, I'm not down with the sort of cosplay that TV personalities often do when they're in the field of like, I'm with the people. It's sort of like that when politicians roll up the two shirt and they're like, I'm just out here doing, it's like, put on a necktie. Be serious. You're you're here to do serious work. Be serious. I don't think I agree with that. I like the relatability. You know the the fleece vest. Yep, it's not going to be me. You're not. That's my demographic. You're. you're I'm, I'm that demographic. You know. The good thing about being a weirdo is I don't ever have to worry about relatability because thank God I am not relatable to the American people. If I was, it would speak very. It would bode ill for the nation. Okay. Speaking of Iowa. Mm-hmm. We had 
news news Race last news. night. Yes. Chris Christie dropping out. Yes. And Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis doing a debate yes. on CNN last night. And Donald Trump doing And Donald Trump doing a hour long commercial. People are saying people are saying it's the best town hall Fox, that's ever been done. I must admit well, let me let me ask you first. What did you think of the Christie Haley debate? Or excuse me, the DeSantis Haley debate? Well, can can we do it in order? Yeah. Okay. Christy dropping out. So last night, as we were going on set to do the Hill on News Nation, 5 p.m. Eastern, set your DVRs. The Christy news is breaking, and this is such a media story. Chris Christie's going to drop out. AP Flash. Chris Christie's dropping out. Chris Christie's dropping out. Every network, and you know, in the studio we have a big monitor up with all of the networks up there. And everybody goes to Chris Christie's town hall. And so he's got what he wanted, which is he timed it right, 5 p.m. Eastern, get it in before the evening news, get it in at the right part of the news cycle. And he held it until the last minute. So it created all that urgency. And he got the what we we used to call roadblock coverage that he was looking for. But what did we what did the media focus on? A hot mic. Well, my question in this was Christy had this hot mic moment where he said Nikki Haley's going to get stomped. Should we play that? Let's hear it. Unless you know. forget she spent $68 million. Yeah. I mean, well, like when you give land to China and places like that. Yeah, that's what you get. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, she spent $68 million so far, just on TV. Spent $68 million so far, $59 million by DeSantis, and we spent twelve. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. She hasn't even been she's still 20 points behind Trump in New Hampshire, right? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And he's, gonna, he's still going to carry out, right? Yes. Always. I, t- you know, I talked to De- DeSantis called me, petrified that I would. He's probably getting out of after Iowa. Well, he's and Ron, course, DeSant- Ron DeSantis, he says, is petrified, called him petrified. Of course, my mind went to the moment in the News Nation debate in December where Christie repeatedly defended Nikki Haley's yes. intelligence and her honor and all this. But I did wonder with this moment, because Chris Christie, I know, had been beseeched by many people to drop out. And the argument was that his candidacy was helping Trump in New Hampshire because his voters, the theory is, will go to Haley and help her potentially will be a boost to her in New Hampshire where she has a chance if, to win. If, if for, for comparative purposes, if Ron DeSantis dropped out today in Iowa, the help to Nikki Haley in Iowa would be mitigated because a lot of the DeSantis, and we'll talk about their their acrimony, but a substantial number of DeSantis voters would go to Trump. To Trump, right. And some would go to Ramaswamy. But they, and some would go to Haley, but certainly not all, maybe not even the majority. In New Hampshire... If Christie's at 10 percent or whatever, those none of those are Trump voters. Right. And none of those are and almost none are DeSantis voters. So it's a boon to Haley. So he had gotten a lot of pressure privately, which really pissed him off. Yes. Saying you got to drop out before New Hampshire because your whole campaign has been premised on opposing Trump. And if that if you are really committed to that, you got to drop out before New Hampshire and get behind Haley. Now, he did not endorse her. No. Notably. And he and he had many acid kind of things to say about her her character. Okay, I wondered if the hot mic moment was not intentional so so that he could have his cake and eat it, too. I've I've thought about it now. I am going to I'm I'm going to give Christie the benefit of the doubt that it was not a plan, but it certainly wouldn't surprise me at all. It's certain it's certainly given what he said about his unnamed opponents, though I thought it was very notable that he called out John Barrasso by name in the speech, Trump endorsing John Barrasso basically as a person who should know better. But given the way he anonymously or in unnamed fashion went after Haley in the speech, I'm sure that's how he feels. And that was the, the fact that that was sort of the last thing he said before the speech. He was talking to somebody and the last thing he said before he gave his remarks was Nikki Haley's going to get smoked and she's not up to this. I don't think it was intentional, but I think it would. How about this? An unconscious. It was an it was an unconscious thing. And I don't know how much that matters simply for this reason. Nikki Haley is the candidate of last resort. 
Nikki Haley is a for people who don't want Donald Trump to be the nominee. And she th that comes with trade-offs, right? Because people aren't saying, I am so excited, or very few people are saying, I am so excited to vote for Nikki Haley. What they are saying is, we got to do something. And the people in New Hampshire, as embodied in the person of Chris Sununu, the governor, are saying, we've got to we got to draw a line in the sand here. We've got to do something about Trump. And we were talking about this before we started recording, but I, I think it bears repeating. Conservatives and moderate Republicans are accustomed to fighting against insurgencies, right? George W. Bush facing John McCain, Pat, Pat Buchanan, Rick Santorum, Mike Huckabee, Herman Cain. We can go down the list of insurgents coming against mainstream Republicans. Well, now mainstream Republicans are a minority in their party, and they've got to start thinking like insurgents. And the way you have to do that is the same way the same way people who backed Rick Santorum, evangelical Protestants in Iowa, who were like, Rick Santorum's not exactly my cup of tea, but I think he's probably our best shot to, to cause heartache for Mitt Romney. That's the kind of thinking that will be required of Nikki Haley's supporters. Which brings us to the Haley-DeSantis face-off. Oof. I really did not think that either of these candidates came out looking no. good or had a moment. I thought it was a diminishing. And I think a lot of people, including me, had really wanted to see just the two of them on yeah. a stage and to see them face off. And first of all, I didn't think it was particularly substantive. The... You know, Haley went over and over again to DeSantisLies.com, DeSantisLies.com, not particularly substantive. And right. I felt like they looked small. I, I think the they're going to go again, right? The two of them are slated to, to debate again, right? They are, but not before Iowa. But before so, New Hampshire. Before New Hampshire. So I, I think... So this was the last face-off before Iowa on Monday. I, I, th I think Haley... As much as we saw in the debate that you moderated in the second half of that debate, she brought a similar energy here, which is playing a prevent defense. And she did not. I I believe that Haley stung by the the criticisms and the feeling that she was not robust enough in the News Nation debate, that she came ready to just attack, 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 that she would not be that she would not it would not be said that she was unwilling to attack DeSantis. What I'll be interested to see, and this is what I love about this time of the year, and this is what I love about my job. A week from now when I'm back from Iowa and we're recording this, the world will look totally different because if DeSantis has some great showing in Iowa and surprises and and you know, for level setting purposes, let me just say, a victory, a, a, a decisive victory for Donald Trump is he gets more than half of the vote. Right. If he gets I agree with that over 50 percent, if he gets over 50 percent of the vote and he's rolling, then that's then that's good for him and status quo. Then the question is, OK, what is what is a loss look like? Or, or I was what's, just what's about a, to go there. What's a bad outcome? And I think for him, a bad outcome is like 40 percent or 30. I was going to say something in the 30s. Oh, if he if if he cards something in, in the, the 30s. if he cards in the 30s, that's a big problem. Right. And th that speaks to. And, you know, not to turn this into a, a politics podcast because it's in the news about the news, but I will say those shockingly cold forecasts, if you're the front runner, that's a problem because if people don't feel like, because remember to caucus at 1600 locations around the state, it takes two or three hours to caucus is already a big demand instead of just going to vote. But when, And you've, the caucuses are so interesting because- you show up at a church and it's like, you know, there are 40 people there, 40 right. to 70 people or so. And you listen to people give speeches on yes. behalf of the candidates. You don't just go, you know, cast a ballot. It's 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 very and the number of caucus goers is so small for the outsized attention that Iowa gets. It's a tiny number of people who are actually casting these. Ballots. And, I, and I love I love it. And I love the Iowans because they do take it seriously and it is important. But severe weather will dampen turnout. And Trump has two problems there. One as the front runner. Well, he doesn't need me. I'm, you know, I don't he he's way ahead. I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to turn out. And then number two, his voters are not 
the Donald Trump's coalition relies on lower propensity voters than Nikki Haley and others because the there's a, a, a potent correlation between education and income and voter propensity. Uh, the richer you are and the better educated you are, generally speaking, the more likely you are to vote. And the the, the and those are Haley voters. Those are Haley voters. And so we'll be looking very much at the Des Moines metro area and the Cedar Rapids area. We'll, so Trump will dominate in the West and then Haley and DeSantis will fight it out uh, in Des Moines in the East. Now, one thing I'm not sure about is that Iowans love Trump. And I do wonder if he, you know, they are fervently committed to Trump. And I do wonder, like, generally speaking, in the country, Trump's voters are the lowest propensity voter. That is all true. And I but I do wonder in terms and, and I, the Iowa caucuses are difficult to poll because it's such a small number of voters. If the Trump Iowa caucus goers are going to be those sort of fair weather voters that I'm not sure about. Right. That's that's the thing. That's that's where Trump. You know, Trump, what Trump does not want is what happened to Hillary Clinton in Iowa in 2008 and what has happened to other people in Iowa, what happened to George H.W. Bush in Iowa uh, long, long ago, which is y- your voters take things for granted. They're, they're not motivated to get out and vote. And the insurgents are fired up and ready to go and want to go make a statement. And uh, Trump has done, has spent a lot of money and he's done the ground game stuff and he's done all of that. But it's interesting to me that here we are just a few days before the caucuses and the fact that Donald Trump's range is still anywhere from 39% to 55% goes to exactly what you're saying. All right. This really, uh, I didn't choose this as my favorite item because it's too big of a news story, but really was the most delicious story of the week, which was Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin's- Woof. Failure to inform the president and the rest of the White House. And we know, his, do we know what his ailment was? Oh, yeah. What was um, his I'll ailment? get there. Okay. Of his first, the fact that he underwent a surgical procedure for the treatment of prostate cancer. That was one. And he had, he transferred his authority to his deputy, Kathleen Hicks. And number two, that a few days later, when that was over, he had a complication from that because, of course, you're always prone to infection if you have surgery that landed him in the ICU where he remains now at Walter Reed uh, Hospital. He's still in? He's still there. Oh, boy. Okay. So Chris and I were chatting before this, and uh, and I was saying that if there is any lesson in how not to manage a crisis, it would be the Lloyd Austin playbook because- all of these details are have drip, drip, dripped out. And what could have been, you know, a two-day news story, it's big enough news that it was going to be a big news story. They could have put this out in a single statement. But, yep. of course, the person who didn't inform the White House that he was going to surgery or that he landed back in the ICU, of course, didn't have the staff with the wherewithal or the good judgment to issue a statement that would have put this to rest. No. The details of this have dripped out. First, Politico breaking the news that he underwent a surgical procedure and transferred his authority without informing the White House. So Politico had the scoop. Politico had the scoop. But then for two days or so, nobody knew well, what happened. You know, what what was the procedure and why is he in the ICU? So that extended the story for a couple of more days. Then they find out, he had, oh, it was for prostate cancer and he's still in the ICU. And John Kirby's briefing on it and the defense, the spokesman for the Secretary of Defense is briefing on it. So the New York Times writes, The extraordinary breach of protocol, Mr. Austin is in charge of the country's 1.4 million active duty military at a time when the wars in Gaza and Ukraine have dominated the American national security landscape, has baffled officials across the government, including at the Pentagon. Senior defense officials say Mr. Austin did not inform them until Thursday that he had been admitted to the intensive care unit at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. The Pentagon then informed the White House. Wow. So textbook case of and Aust- how not to manage a crisis. Austin is 70 and he was considered to be a little a, a little on the senior side for the post. 
and they had to do the same thing that they they did with Jim Mattis, which is get an exception, I believe, so that a retired because you're not supposed to put retired military officers or people who have recently served in that position. That's the idea is to, to reinforce the idea of a civilian military. You don't want to take people straight out of the military and put them in. So they got an exemption. And I'm sure that Austin felt, I forget what percentage of men over 70 have prostate cancer. It's like three quarters or something. And everyone gets it eventually, right. basically. It, yes. You live long enough. You live long enough. You're going to have problems down there. Um, and so I'm sure he didn't want the embarrassment of having a swimsuit area procedure, a, ba- a bathing suit area procedure. And that would be embarrassing. What well, this I, is more embarrassing. Well, and, and here's what I can't fathom. So, and this is like with Hunter Biden too, and a lot of people, Joe Biden's got enough problems these days, right? If you want to see Joe Biden get reelected, dude has enough problems these days. The, the selfishness of Lloyd Austin here is, is pretty astonishing. And now, of course, Biden can't fire him while he's in the, in the hospital, right? You can't can him. But I certainly hope for to, that I'm sure Lloyd Austin's a good person. Uh, I certainly hope that he demonstrates that by when he's out of the hospital, that he that he retires, that he that he lets Biden off the hook on this, because this is a real woof. Well, the Washington Post, Josh Rogan had a great column on this. And he he says Austin's avoidable scandal was caused by hubris and mismanagement. Say word. And he writes. Austin's problematic actions and those of his senior staff go well beyond his failure to tell Hicks why she was assuming some of his duties and his failure to tell the White House he was in the intensive care unit. By the way, Kathleen Hicks was on vacation in Puerto Rico when she was informed. And he didn't even tell her what it was about? No, he did not tell her why she was assuming this. Austin also failed to disclose his diagnosis for several weeks. And the way this was handled constituted a breakdown in the United States' national security bureaucracy. Several other senators told me Tuesday they couldn't understand why Austin hid his health issues and they promised to press for a full and public accounting. And Rogan adds, Austin was partially incapacitated while U.S. forces were conducting lethal operations against militia groups in Iraq and fending off attacks in Syria and the Red Sea. His deputy was on vacation in Puerto Rico. The president, national security advisor and secretary of state didn't know where he was. The leaders of the House and Senate Armed Services Committees were also kept in the dark. All right, here's our bet. Will, at our next recording, Lloyd Austin still be the United States Secretary of Defense? I actually think he will be. Then I'll take the no. I'm not, okay. it's not a strong, but I'll, I'll take the no. I'll ta- I, I think that he'll, he'll, do, he'll do the right thing and step aside. Why isn't Biden asking for his resignation? Because he's in the ICU. So what? I... I I I I'm going to I'm going to give Biden credit for being humane and not and also from a political standpoint you don't want it you don't want it to appear like you've been stampeded I think this is a hit to Biden's credibility totally. and and by the way Rogan concludes will Austin resign probably not but his credibility and confidence in his leadership have taken huge hits and I would add he hit Joe Biden's credibility because it looks like this guy can't keep his house in order, as have the credibility of his chief of staff and press secretary. They undermined the public's trust in the U.S. government and created a completely avoidable scandal for Biden at the worst possible time. You cannot embarrass your boss like Aust- this. Austin will will resign. The question is, will he do it this in the coming week? Will he do it? Will it will he drag out? And I, the, I don't think we have a Hunter Biden section here, but. Hunter Biden's appearance at the House, was it oversight or judiciary? I forget which committee. Oversight. So he showed up at the House Oversight Committee. Nancy Mace, who has very much decided to become a preposterous person, accused him of white privilege and of having no testicles. And the smugness of Hunter Biden sitting in the front row as- uh, Flanked by Abby Lowell on one side, the Washington super lawyer, and- his sugar daddy, Kevin Morris. Yeah. His major art purchaser. Major, the... just an art lover. Yeah. Just a person who, <laughs> just just a patron of the arts. Yeah. <laughs> and it's what Hunter, what what 
Republicans are doing with Hunter Biden is gross, right? It's like they're 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 trying to score political. They're trying to use House oversight to score political points. Check. It's true that Hunter Biden doesn't have the decency to his father for all that he owes his father. And this is just something I've repeated often, but it bears repeating. All of the money that Hunter Biden made, all of the trips around the world, all of the art that he sold, all of that is trading on his father's accomplishments. That's all that that is. And now when his father is in the fight of his life to try to retain the presidency, that Hunter Biden would go and do that is just I, I know preposterous. I, I know I should stop being shocked. And and the, the the hard part is it's good for Hunter Biden, right? It helps Hunter Biden's case, but it's it harms his father. It's and preposterous. It's just and offensive. It's a kind of selfishness that we we that we that don't we even, have come to expect from Hunter Biden. That we that but that still surprises and even in Washington, a place a place where solipsism reigns. It's surprising even here. Well, that brings us to our Claudine Gay section of the podcast where Here we, we have fallout from the Harvard president's resignation. And the NBC News has, uh, you know, which didn't break a, a w- lick of news on this, contributes to the coverage with the following report. Black women at Harvard say Claudine Gay's ouster reflects a system that wasn't built for them. Subheadline. Some black women students at the university say Gay's ouster has been, quote, heart-wrenching to witness. Eden Getuan was ecstatic when just 13 months ago, she learned Harvard University was, would have its first black female president. But she sensed even then that Claudine Gay, a prominent African-American studies scholar, would face harsh obstacles leading the predominantly white institution. Here's get to on. But I did from the very beginning recognize there's a chance that she is just going to be used as a puppet of the institution. This situation has proven she still is a victim of these controlling forces. Right-wing attacks on gay were swift. With conservative activists like Christopher Rufo and billionaire investor Bill Ackman using the situation and allegations of plagiarism to attack diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, Gatuan and Howard said they did not feel Harvard did enough to protect gay from the targeted right-wing attacks. The campaign against gay has only shown, quote, the intense standard that black oh. women are held to, <laughs> Getuan said. I.e., the same ones to which they hold their students. It's, at, it's quite an intense standard. As you get higher up, it doesn't afford you more safety, but makes you more subject to that scrutiny. If it had been a white male in her, her position... As you get higher up, you're afforded more impunity. Yeah, like the president of Stanford. That the the infantilization of Claudine Gay, the like the and the, the lack of a a to be sure. Yeah, in that article, no to be sure is. I mean, that is a. I don't fault these children quoted in the article for having childish views. Yeah, I fault NBC News for publishing a garbage piece of reporting like that. As if, quote, uh, this is from Kyla Golding, as if surviving the cruel, cold, misogynoir of the world while simultaneously being burned by the heat emanating through the intensified pressure black women constantly face isn't enough to conquer. The higher up she goes, the thinner the altitude gets. Misogynoir is one for the the Wretches Hall of Fame. Misogynoir. Amazing. Well, Business Insider also followed up on ah, yes. the Claudine Gay reporting to train its sights on the billionaire Harvard donor Bill Ackman's wife, who is an MIT PhD. She's no longer a professor there by the name of Neri Oxman. Okay. I had never heard of her, but they wrote that accused her of plagiarizing portions of her PhD thesis. And I I also did not know that Business Insider is owned by Axel Springer, the enormous European news with your man With your man, Matthias Dopfner. My t- yes. So Axel Springer announced, you know, Bill Ackman has been on Twitter saying he was given, you know, 90 minutes to respond to a media inquiry about this, that the allegations are bunk. 
she did make corrections or said she would make corrections to her PhD. But Axel Springer issued a statement saying it was going to review the process around this story, which reporters, of course, interpreted as Axel Springer throwing Business Insider under the bus here. And the Washington Post reports, Business Insider staffers were surprised by the Axel Springer statement, which many had not realized was coming until a New York Times reporter shared it online. According to a Business Insider employee who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they are not authorized to speak publicly. Anyhow. Here's my, fa my favorite Washington Post paragraph writing about its competitor, Politico, basically. The company supports Israel openly in a way that would be unusual for a nonpartisan American media firm. Axel Springer employees in Germany, though not at its U.S. properties, must sign a mission statement that affirms Israel's right to exist, among other issues. In 2021, the Israeli flag flew for a week in front of the company's offices after Diepner mandated it as a statement against anti-Semitism, telling anyone who had a problem with the flag to leave the company. Well, here's... Jews. Yeah. <laughs> here's what I think is maybe a more interesting conversation than this statement is, is it, is the story about Ackman's wife newsworthy? Well, I, I confess I find, I know that it's trying to score points on against a rival that wa the Washington Post is going after Politico through this and going. And well, no, Insider. I thought Business Insider is is pushing back on Ackman and saying, you think it's terrible the president of Harvard plagiarized? Well, your own wife plagiarized. Right. I sort of thought, and I know, I you know, I'm biased. The Beacon did a bunch of reporting on the Harvard, but I thought, who friggin' cares if Bill Ackman's wife plagiarized? Like, she's not the president of Harvard. I've never even heard of her. As I just it, did not find it to be an interesting or newsworthy story. I I, I think that as a, a small item where you're like, oh, interestingly, a guy who is on the warpath against this, his wife has, is facing those allegations. That's like a, I don't know that it's a story I'd devote, in, devote much resource to. But if it, if, if, and I assume this is oppo research that somebody going after Ackman scrutinize and maybe business insider did this as an enterprise story maybe they cooked it up themselves but i cynically am guessing that it was dropped in their laps by gay defenders but i do think the i i continue to be fascinated by axel springer and matthias dupner and his role in and and how bringing this sort of i don't know what's the nate what's the um the center-right party in Germany. Is that the the Christian Democrats? I, it's the CDU, I think, in Germany, but sort of bringing the center-right German energy into American politics and finding these intersections, I think is interesting. Oh, wait. We didn't even talk about the Axios coverage of the Lloyd Austin thing. Oh, yes. Which was Andrew Solander. Axios. Republicans erupt over Secretary... Over secrecy in Defense Secretary's hospitalization, which was amazing because in the New York Times piece, it had Richard Blumenthal expressing yeah, yeah, yeah. outrage. You know, every Democrat on one of these um, armed services committees was exasperated by this because it's embarrassing to the Democratic president. Be smart. Yeah. Be smart. Be smart. Republicans pounce. Be smart. Um, Republicans pounce. In any case, uh, Don Lemon. Don, Don Lemon. Lemon coming back in partnership with Elon Musk. Just fabulous. Um, X announcing, we're delighted to announce a new content partnership with <laughs> at Don Lemon for his new project, The Don Lemon Show. The award-winning TV journalist will share his unique and honest voice in 30-minute episodes three times a week covering politics, culture, sports, and entertainment. The show will run exclusively first on X. Welcome, Don. I just, I, I, I'm, I love it. I just, lo I, I, lo I love the like, wait a minute. We're getting we're getting rung are getting our bell rung day in and day out for dumb things that Elon Musk says for Tucker Carlson, for all of this sort of, you know, garbagey nationalist blah, blah, blah. What are we going to do, boys? Who do we got? Who's out there? Who's available from the left? Don Lemon sounds great. Let's get Don Lemon, who what did he say about Nikki Haley? Oh, that, she's Pastor Prime. Yes. You can look it up. You can Google it. She's passed at 51. She's 53, passed her I think. But in any case, that any woman 
in their 30s or probably their or maybe their 40s yeah. is past their prime. Yeah, once you get once you get the you passed your prime. I'm getting past my prime. You're I'm almost 40. Two things I can say. Past my prime. Neutral to good smelling and still in your prime. <laughs> Those two things remain I'm, true. I'm approaching past prime. Chris, that brings us to our style section. Where we have a Daily Mail item. Israeli news anchor packing heat on set. I shared the I shared this because I saw it on our friend Elizabeth Vargas's show on News Nation that she interviewed the the news anchor and I saw this and sent it to the group because I want to know are you ready to start or is is your next style accessory This is going to be a, a a beacon thing. Yeah. Is is your next is she, possible man of the year? Is 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 your next accessory going to be pack and heat? Lital Shemash, Shemash, a presenter for right-wing Israeli broadcaster Channel 14, was pictured on Tuesday sitting behind her anchored desk with a gun tucked into the waistband well, of her what trousers. Kind of piece. I would totally do this with like a cute pink gun. Shemash's gun is right next to her microphone receivers while she is sitting on the edge of her presenter chair. Her most recent social media post showed her practicing her shooting skills on a gun range, and she called for people to get your guns out. She also posted several pictures of herself reporting from the front lines as well as in her soldier's uniform. Oh, it's just a regular black gun here. Looks like a Glock. I'm all I'm all for it. Or Glock or Glock and look adjacent. At her. How long until she has an American television contract? How long? What's what's the countdown until? If the Free Beacon had a network. I, I assume she is being inundated with offers from Fox and elsewhere for her her show. So get ready. She's a pistol packing mama, and and if Eliana shows up strapped, we'll let you know. Yeah, Should we do our cooking. Yeah, now? it's time. Oh, okay, great. With no further ado, how did we, how well first? How did we find out about this? How did it? Come this was to from us? a, a pre in a previous style segment. We talked about the kids' hot, yeah, Christmas gifts that are selling out. You couldn't get them, but folks, we've got it. We got the them. Cookies Makery. We've got them here, where we are going to bake stuffed how come animals. You got, how come you got blue and I got pink? It seems like that's. We're, we're, we're being because we are not constrained by the gender binary here. Okay, that's fair. All right, so we're going to make them. Oh, here's the cookbook. So the idea okay. is that we bake great pets, that the idea here is that the, this hot toy is like an easy bake oven, but instead of baking cookies and treats, you are baking pets. Okay, which which, which one are you going to do? You're going to do pink you or do, blue? You have to mix them both together. You mix them both? Yeah, you only get one pet. Yep. All of this is to produce one pet? Yes. Oh, it stinks. It does? Oh, it just smells like Play-Doh, gross. It's not that bad. It smells like kind of... And the... you have to stir it for two minutes. I think it's dangerous <laughs> to give children <laughs> a toy that simulates baking, and then it's not edible. It's dry. Oh, mine is a hideous monster. Okay. <laughs> Which side should I put down? <laughs> All right. Just in... And then close her up. Okay. So the. Whoa. Yep. I think that was it. Was it supposed to make that alarming to chunk? Um, is it still yeah, it's yeah. ticking. <laughs> somebody, somebody cooked in here. Okay. You ready? Yeah. Ah! Oh, what? What? Are you freaking kidding me? <laughs> it smells delicious it does smell like okay that's awesome it's awesome oh um gee i hate this so much there aren't words to adequately describe i don't like this i don't care for it i don't like its fraudulency you may i'm so delighted by this all right chris Having cooked our pets, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. Where we break down the story so we can't get out of our heads. I, you know, we've been down on the Washington Post, but I 
really liked this story. Oh, you liked it. I agree. I really did. The headline, a former congresswoman posted food pics online. Grubgate ensued. Photos shared by former rep Mayra Flores raised questions about where they had originated. The upshot of this story is that a former congresswoman, Mayra Flores, who's running again for Congress, was posting pictures of authentic Hispanic food. So here and she was putting, you know, captions in Spanish of tortillas and meat and all, and all this stuff. Our cookies are ta- or our, our animals are talking and presenting them as things that she had cooked and eagle-eyed viewers of her social media. Best one was Joe Biden is not invited to the carne asada and it was, you know, a picture of a grill with meat on it and tortillas. The and- ranch life she says The ranch life with family is the best. La vida de rancho and familia es lo mejor. Okay. And people started reverse image searching these, and they were, like, not her pictures. No, they were not. Not things she cooked. She was taking the images from other chefs. And Well, one is from the, I think, Guiana, the, the Guiana tourism page. Yeah. One from a Guatemalan magazine week. And I just thought it was a great story, like a real story about how someone is trying to present herself to the public in an inauthentic way. Very good, clever, wish the beacon had had a story like this. As a proud Latina who knows how to cook, homemade Mexican food tastes better from a gas stove. And the kicker is, Five days after questions swirled about the non-gorditas de masa, Flores posted another food fo- photo, a rosca de reyes, or three kings bread, a large ring of breaded cake that's baked with a baby figurine inside and decorated with dried fruit. This time, Flores was in the photo. I, that, I'll give Great you a, story. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you one I'll on that. I'll take mine out of the oven so I can do That's right. Take your pet back out of the yeah. oven so you're ready. New York Times, this is a long-standing obsession of mine and very good to see David Leonhardt, economics reporter and other other things, coming in with the misguided war on the SAT and good for him for doing it and good for the Times for, for being there on this. There was a, I don't know, a 30-year war on the SAT. It is very much alive and, but in I'm, that during COVID- the top schools got rid of it went they call it test optional yep and very few of the top schools are requiring it now and the perverted aspect of this is that with great inflation being rampant it is more and more difficult to distinguish between who who are really the top students well and in, in subjective measurements children of privilege have greater advantages even than they do on standardized testing because the beef about standardized testing was that it was it was latently racist when i was taking the sat the complaint so this is you know 35 years ago or whatever however old i am was that it was bigoted because it asked black people black students questions that you know cup versus saucer well how many Black families had cups and saucers, that it was against poor people because of, of all of those things. And then because <laughs> then, then that because affluent people could pay for test prep. I'm I'm wrapping it up. I'm wrapping it up, <laughs> cookies makery. But that that it was a, an unfair barrier. But why did why did it, this was uh, reverse engineering? SATs were not producing the student bodies that these institutions wanted because they were too white or they were too Asian or they were too wealthy or they were too whatever. So they said, well, the test must be the problem. The test must be the problem. And so they went to these more subjective things. And as we've talked about here before, what, who's going to be good at writing essays? Who's going to be good at financing the community service work? Who's going to be able to take a trip to a public service trip to go to, you know, someplace where Myra Flores stole a photograph to do public service? Who's going to be able to do all those things? 
rich people. And you lose the clear marker of intelligence. And I will just say, SAT scores are not a good way to move all poor people up, but they are certainly a good way for gifted young people who are in bad school districts, who have adverse circumstances to be identified and singled out for advancement. And I know meritocracy is not real popular right now, but I want to just say that for inner city, disadvantaged inner city areas, for rural America, for Appalachia, for the Deep South, for the Intermountain West, SAT scores are a lifeline for kids who don't have access to the kind of schooling that sets them up to write winsome essays that will impress the folks at Tufts. So good, good for Leonhardt, good for the good for the times. I just wanted to read the what I thought was the best couple of sentences in this essay, which is researchers who have studied the issue say the test scores can be particularly helpful in identifying lower income students and underrepresented minorities yes. who will thrive. These students do not score as high on average as students from affluent communities, i.e. there are still going to be differences between yes. rich kids and poor kids or white and Asian students. But a solid score for a student from a less privileged background is often a sign of enormous potential. And they have a nice plot chart here. The test scores are a strong predictor of college performance. The percentage of the, the ratio of students who get uh, a 3.8 college GPA or better has a powerful correlation to strong SAT scores, whereas... GPA, as you point out with great inflation, is a low is a low predictor. And one of the things, and I'll I'll shut up after this, but one of the 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 problems about putting people in colleges where they are not equipped to do the work is they fail. And then they feel bad. And the people who and then it it casts it it casts a, a dim light on the group that they're there to represent, right? So if you come out of a holler in, you know, Wirt County, West Virginia, and you get to go to Princeton or Yale, and you get there and then you can't do the work, that doesn't look good for, it doesn't feel good for you because now you feel like a failure. And it doesn't look good for Wirt Countyans and Appalachians and Creekers either. And I just, I, I think this is a, a something I'm, I'm glad to see people coming around on. Chris, that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is Reader Mail. And we have a note from Eric Crotty in Astoria, Oregon. And he says, Sir, Madam, as always, I really enjoyed the podcast, including Mr. Steyerwalt's correct etymological breakdown of harumph. But to be pedantic, if you will, I take issue with Chris seeming to intimate that the name of Governor Lepetamane in Blazing Saddles is a play on pedam. What is this? Tomain. Tomain? Yeah. I.e. the old word used for food poisoning, e.g. botulism. I have never heard of that word. Here, he could not be more wrong. Lepetamane is, of course, a reference to the French comedian. And here I am fully citing Wikipedia. Wow. Ahem, by the name of Joseph Pujol. <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually familiar. Pujol. Yeah. June first, eighteen fifty seven to August eighth, nineteen forty five, better known by his stage name Lepetamane, a French flatulist wow. and entertainer. Parenthetically, I beg to report that the apocryphal story about Antoine Lavoisier having invented the whoopee cushion and this having led to his beheading during the French Revolution is sadly just that unconfirmed and likely untrue. All the best and keep up the excellent podcasting, reporting, critiquing. The profession is referred to as a flatulist, fartour, or fartiste. Now, I'm going to guess that, for, well, thank you, sir, for what, who's our correspondent Eric here? Eric Crotty. Thank you, Mr. Crotty, for bringing the French flatulist to our attention, Mr. Pujol. But I'm going to guess that Mr. Pujol's stage name was itself. A, a gag in reference to, especially since his work was about emissions and intestinal distress, that it was itself a, and I, I, I'm prepared to be corrected, but that it was itself a gag on Tomain. Chris, that brings us to your favorite time of the week. 
Oh, yes. But as always, please lead me by example. I really like this piece from Tom Zellner, a, who's described as a journalist and fifth-generation Arizonan. I have learned to have new appreciation for the desert, and he, and I, I, I like it now in a way that I, and I appreciate its beauty in a way that I didn't. And th- this is sort of a rebuttal about people talking about climate change and the Southwest and all of that stuff. This summer when the temperature hit 100 degrees, 110 degrees Fahrenheit or above in Phoenix for 31 straight days, many were fretting about the Southwest pro- prospects in the age of climate change. A writer for The Atlantic asked, when, when will the Southwest become unlivable, unlivable? Bloomberg wondered, how long can we keep living in hot boxes like Phoenix? The foregone conclusion seemed to be that the region was heading for a crash destined to become an uh, overpopulated, unlivable dead zone plagued by ranch foreclosures, unemployment, water wars, and heat deaths. As a writer who has studied the Southwest's history and spoken to some of its top environmental experts this year, I see its future differently, not as a hellscape, but as an opportunity for centuries of climate ingenuity and adaptation to be put to good use. For generations, the people who were determined to come here have found ways to cope and even thrive. My favorite fact that he shares in here is that water usage in Arizona is lower now than it was, here's the here's the line, because of a reduction in farmland acreage and better household conservation, Arizona now uses 3% less water than it did in 1957. So I just like that this was a, a, a way to think about these these issues positively and a way to, to acknowledge the potential for human flourishing. Chris, my favorite item was about, was the New York Post coverage of the Australian McDonald's burger that has come to the U.S., yes, and it is the Double Big Mac. And the New York Post writes, Australians are no stranger to the hectic burger, which features four beef patties and lashings of the brand's signature Big Mac sauce, as it has a permanent Id- as it has been a permanent item on our menu since March 2020. Now, fast food fanatics in the Northern Hemisphere can get their hands on the mammoth menu item, which McDonald's described as double the fun sending their taste buds into overdrive. But while some diners have welcomed the sandwich, sandwich, others have labeled it disgusting. Well, count me firmly in camp. Welcome. I'm going to I'm going to tell you something that won't surprise anyone. You can already have a double Big Mac because thanks to kiosk ordering and app ordering at McDonald's, you can already double your patties and and make it happen. And if you leave the bread off, it's just a health treat. It's just, it's just good. It's, it's good for you. Good feeling food that you can feel good about. Well, I can't wait to try it. I'm here for it. Yep. It's got to be more delicious than a chemical scented cat. I don't know about that. But that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcast.com. And sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcast.com. This has been Inkstained Wretches from Nebulous Media, produced by new father, Yay! Welcome, Louie. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. And we will be back next week with a post-Iowa breakdown. Bye.